0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Our passage this morning, I will say it is the one that gave me the, the biggest pause as I was praying through this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um... I knew that if I planned to tackle these, these seminal chapters in Matthew's gospel, that I could not just skip these verses. That's the problem with preaching through books of the Bible and preaching through texts, is you can't skip anything, because as soon as you skip somebody, uh, there's some wise guy in the congregation that said, Hey, preacher, you skipped something. And I'll be honest, there are things I'd rather skip. There's parts I would rather avoid uh, because of the challenge that they present and, and the, the way that they affect us. However, I I can't do that. I can't just skip these verses, as difficult as they may be. I I think there's a couple of reasons for why this this text is is particularly hard. Uh, For one, our our contemporary situation is is so radically different than the ideals that are set forth by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount here. Um, Inside the church, outside the church, marriages fail. Honestly, we've done so much damage to the institution of marriage in the last five years, we all kind of get the sense that there's, there's no going back to that ideal of one man and one woman for life. The idea almost seems quaint to our modern sensibilities considering the, the condition of the world that we are, we are in. The other problem is simply this, divorce has affected far too many of us. We, um, one estimate suggests that eight out of every ten of us in the room have been directly affected by a divorce, whether our own, our parents' divorce, or the divorce of our children. You literally could spend days, and I mean days, combing through the, the statistical research as it pertains to divorce you're likely familiar with that old rule of thumb that that half of all marriages end in divorce. Well, the fact is that that's not exactly true. It's way more complicated than that. It's not that that if 10 people get married this year, five of them are going to be divorced. That's not really how that statistic works. Actually, there are some face value, some encouraging things going on. Uh, The divorce rate is actually falling. Uh, that there are fewer people who are getting divorces today, and that's courtesy of the millennials. So if you're a millennial, you can, uh, you can give yourself a, a pat on the back for, uh, for helping in that trend. Uh, however, uh, the divorce rate for those over 50 has actually doubled in the last 25 years. They call it the, the graying of divorce, that, that people over the age of 50, something happens when, when adults become empty nesters, and it's a product of us investing so much time and effort in our children that we forget who we're married to. Not that we shouldn't love our kids, but I firmly believe the healthiest thing for children is a healthy marriage between mom and dad. However, don't think that a declining divorce rate is a good thing, especially when you recognize some of the other complexities that are at work there. Uh, For one is marriage rates are on the decline. So if millennials are helping us keep marriage uh, divorce rates low, millennials are also helping us uh, delay the marriage rate as more and more millennials are waiting to get married. And at the same time, cohabitation rates are dramatically increasing. The number of people choosing to live together to try it out marriage before they actually commit is dramatically climbing. And who knows what the effect of 2020 is going to have on this data. A recent report in the New York Post stated that the number of people looking for divorces, listen to this, was 34% higher from March to June of 2020, compared to the same period of time in 2019. Uh, that's, a, that's an astonishing increase year over year. And the logic being that if you're stuck at home with your sweetie, uh, that, uh, that, that maybe some of the flaws in the relationship are exposed when you are stuck in the house with one another. I truly appreciate what John Stott, he's a commentator, he said about the difficulty in dealing with this topic. He said, there is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage. There's almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. I think that summarizes how we feel about this topic. So, so my goal today as we dig into a difficult subject is multifaceted. First, I want to revisit the, the biblical design for marriage. In this confused world in which we live, it's good to be reminded of God's good design. The church, and not every church, mind you, is the last place that is advocating for the traditional view of marriage, which is one man, one woman, for life. There are a lot of places that you could go worship today where that is not the view that is espoused from the pulpit. I will not be apologetic for holding to biblical principles, even when our world has departed from those principles. Even though that position will likely get me censured in a lot of places, I will not be apologetic for that stand. I will continue to advocate for the biblical vision for marriage, even as it becomes more and more perilous to hold to such a standard in the world in which we live. Secondly, I want to cast a vision for those in our midst who are in a marriage that is on the rocks. In spite of all the social pressures that you are dealing with to end your marriage, you do not have to go down the pathway of divorce. It will not be easy to overcome the challenges that have brought you to the place of breaking your vows, but the payoff is absolutely worth it. Third, I want to encourage those whose journey has involved a failed marriage. In spite of the judgment of the more Pharisaical among us, divorce is not the unpardonable sin, and it does not require one to wear a scarlet letter around their neck for the rest of their life. Finally, and I think what may be most important for us today, is I want to consider how we as a church can work to divorce proof our congregation. I think we all recognize the damage that's caused in our churches when we recognize how prevalent divorces are in today's church. And I'd like to see us as Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church take steps to make sure that we can build strong walls of marriage around our church. There's some key steps that we can take to help strengthen current marriages and to help prepare the next generation for marriage. And that's a lot to cover. I've only got about an hour and a half to do it, so... (laughs) Can we divorce our preacher? Uh, So let's jump in and get to work. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at two verses today as our catapult, and then we'll be looking at some other places as well. Matthew chapter 5, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the, um, the, the matter-of-fact way in which it is presented to us today. Lord, I pray that as your words can be cutting and can be challenging, that we would recognize that the heart of of our God is to be a holy people, uh, to be a people who walk in righteousness, and as kingdom citizens, that our families might model this citizenship ideal of the kingdom of God. Lord, we are again grateful for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The first goal I mentioned is to establish a biblical model model of marriage. Again, we all understand what that biblical model is. It doesn't take a lot of, of, of explanation. In fact, uh, it's quite simple. One man, one woman for life. However, as we approach Jesus' teaching on marriage, it's important for us to recognize that, that there's a conversation taking place in the background. Uh, as we approach Scripture, it's always good to remember there is a conversation taking place in the background of the Word of God. There are people talking behind the scenes of what we're actually seeing there on, on the, in the plain text of Scripture. And so there is a conversation taking place in the background of Jesus' ministry as well. Again, marriage, marriage had always been a, a settled issue, but man is constantly attempting to circumvent God's original design in marriage. We've seen that in our own day and time as, as we certainly endured the, the rise of no-fault divorce in the 70s and 80s, and now marriage, goodness gracious, it has to be, you have to define your terms now when speaking outside of a Bible-believing church. Uh, in Jesus' day, there was a bit of controversy swirling around the issue of divorce. It all stemmed from how various teachers were interpreting the instructions given in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. There Moses gave some very specific instruction on divorce. Moses says there in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs, out of his house. Now that's a long phrase. It's full of conditional clauses and things like that. But but ultimately what what the, the the point here Moses is saying is that if there is some sort of some sort of impurity, some sort of indecency, that there was a permission for divorce to be granted in the law of Moses. Now, now believe it or not there was a conservative and a liberal opinion about this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, just in the same way that there is a conservative and liberal opinion today about the definition and scope of marriage. And it all stemmed around one simple word. If you see that word indecency there in Deuteronomy 24, that word indecency, you think, well, well what's an indecent person in a marriage? What does indecency look like? And that was where the argument stemmed from. The more conservative view was that indecency referred to, referred to some grave marital offense, uh, meaning that there was some sort of um, uh, you know some sort of abusive situation or something something along those lines. It's not talking about adultery in this case. You know why Deuteronomy chapter twenty four doesn't say adultery is grounds for divorce? Because in the book of Deuteronomy, if adultery happened, guess what happened to the adulterer? They're dead. And so the marriage is dissolved because the adulterer is executed in the community. So there was no need to say that adultery was a, was a ticket out of marriage because when your spouse was, was executed, you didn't have to worry about that anymore. So you have this idea of I- indecency. And, and again, the conservative said, you know, it's got to be something serious. It, it can't just be something flippant. The more liberal position in this conversation is that indecency was in the eye of the beholder. Meaning that if your wife was indecent, uh, indecency could be something as 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 serious as her burning your dinner. Uh, husbands, don't you dare look her in the eye right now. Don't you dare. If you learn anything, this is this is there better not be elbow jabs going on during this conversation, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as something as serious as burning dinner, uh, something as serious as, as not looking attractive when the husband came home from working in the field, um, the husband could see her being indecent if he, had, if he found someone who was less indecent. Uh, and comparing, uh, comparing one to the other, well, this person is more decent than the other. And so there was this liberal sense that if I can just find something wrong with her, then I can give her a certificate of divorce and I can go on my way. You can understand where this conversation would lead. And so when you look at Jesus' lengthy teaching on marriage and divorce over in Matthew chapter 19, this is the conversation that's taking place there. The the people are having this argument about what what does that simple word indecency mean? you remember over in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees approached Jesus and asked him a simple question. Is it lawful, meaning Jesus, is it legal to divorce one's wife for any cause? So you have this conversation between conservative and liberal. The Pharisees were hoping to to rope Jesus into some controversy so that they could use his words against him, perhaps bolster their own position. But one thing about Jesus is, is Jesus was less concerned about the reasons for divorce, and more concerned about the institution of marriage. And I think that's where we get off track. We're worried about the, the, the finite details of, of uh, the, the legal matters, but really where we need to go is where Jesus went, and that's all the way back to the very beginning. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He looks at God's original design. And there in Matthew chapter 19, he points back to the book of Genesis and he makes four key points about marriage in terms of God's original design. And and church, I would say that as as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to affirm these four principles. Even when we don't get it right, we still hold firm to these, these principles, right? Uh, we still affirm that these are. this is God's standard. This is God's way. And the first thing that we understand is that marriage is exclusive. There in the book of Genesis, God says that for this reason, a man shall leave his parents and he will join with his wife. That is the exclusive relationship that is defined for us in the Bible. You don't find any other versions of that. Uh, everything that our modern world and our modern sens- sensibilities wants to throw at it It doesn't get away from the basic simple design that God gave us that is for this reason a man should leave his family and join with his wife. That is exclusive. It's also permanent. He continues that not only will he join with his wife, it says that the two become one flesh. The one flesh union is that union which is indivisible. Uh, If you look around, uh, look at yourself, you are one flesh. If I were to try to make you two fleshes, you'd be kind of angry with me because it would likely kill you. Uh, I would have to sever something off of you to make you into two fleshes. If I came at you with a samurai sword and cut off your right arm, you would be two fleshes. You would be a very unhappy two fleshes, but you would be two fleshes. The goal of one flesh is it is a permanent union. The two shall become as one. It is indivisible. God says there in Matthew chapter 19, what God has joined together, let man not separate. It is a permanent union. But one of the things that, that the Pharisees do is, is when Jesus teaches this is, is that they say, well, Jesus, then why, if this is the case, did Moses give us the law on divorce? If, if this is okay, if this is, if this is the standard, then why in the world is there a, is there a way out? Why is there a, an opportunity for us to, to be divorced? If, if this is the case, then why does the law contain a divorce provision? And that's a fair question. It's one that I'm quite honestly thankful that Jesus answered for us. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart... Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So we understand that divorce is a divine concession to human weakness. Hard-hearted humans is certainly a human weakness, and God gives this concession due to the reality and the condition of our hearts. God grants the provision, but it functioned only to bring order to an institution that God's people had already defiled they had already messed it up by the time we get to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and so so how in the world do you fix a situation that is already out of control? Um, if you go back to the, the founding of, of our country, you, you probably have heard of something called the, I think, the Three-Fifths Compromise, which was a way of, of dealing with the, the slave problem, uh, because our, our founders, though many of them owned slaves, it was not a, a condition that um, that they were eager to, to maintain, it was the condition of, of the land in which we lived, it was the reality. And so how in the world do you account for for these people? We, how do we deal with this? And one of the ways they handled that was through, the, through, was through that compromise that granted that, uh, that voting rights or, or that, that was extended to the number of slaves based on a, on a fraction. It was our working towards undoing a problem. Eventually we would get there, but it took a long time to get there marriage was already a problem. And so in Deuteronomy, we have this concession because marriage is already a disaster. It's already been uh, taken apart from God's original design. And so divorce in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, is a concession to the human predicament. When we look to Matthew chapter 19, it's echoed here in the Sermon on the Mount. The only reason Jesus gives for divorce is unchastity. Uh, In Matthew chapter 19, the condition for divorce is some kind of sexual immorality. Again, well, what is sexual immorality? Uh, The New Testament uses a word that you're probably very familiar with. It's the word pornea. Anytime you see the word sexual immorality in the New Testament, it's likely the Greek word pornea, which if you hear the first four letters of that word, it's where we get our word pornography from. And what is pornography? Well, it's a lot of things. Uh, It's like the Supreme Court Justice said, says, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it uh pornea sexual immorality is is any kind of of perversion that occurs outside the boundaries of god's good design and so again inside the marriage relationships uh, sexual uh, sexual liberty is a is a blessing it's beautiful but outside of that it's a it's it's a failure of god's good design and so this means it's not just adultery but any kind of defilement of that one flesh relationship between husband and wife so that's the principles, and I've, I don't have a problem with those principles I, uh, because Jesus gives us these principles. So why in the world would we have a problem accepting them? When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we understand that there's one other, one other New Testament teaching on divorce, and we call it the Pauline exception. Pauline meaning it's not, a, not, not because some woman named Pauline uh, invented it. It's because it, Paul is the one that, that sort of coined it. Um, And this only became a problem as the gospel began to grow and spread. What happens when the gospel is brought into a new community and one spouse receives the gospel, the other spouse rejects the gospel, and you've got a marriage relationship in which there is a Christian and a non-Christian. This obviously creates some tensions in the home in a lot of ways. And so the Pauline exception is this that when an unbelieving spouse was so put off by the new faith of of his or her spouse, and that unbelieving spouse chose to abandon the marriage, to abandon the home, then there was was freedom granted to that relationship. Uh, Again, uh, it, it was a very practical issue for the church that the church had to deal with. And there in 1 Corinthians 7:15, the Apostle Paul explains this. And if an unbelieving spouse chose to leave a believing spouse, then the believing spouse was freed from that marriage bond. Now that is a broad survey of the biblical content. We could spend a great deal of time with all of this. There is a, there's a lot of teaching that I'm having to rush through because of the constraints that we have from a time standpoint. But I wanted to get to these, this, this practical thing out of the way here first, so we can really get to the, get to the question that, 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 that's in the room right now. And so the, the second goal was to speak to the couple that's on the rocks. Um, at no point in Jesus' teaching does he command divorce. Understand that. At no point in time does Jesus say, if this happens, you must divorce. It's it's not there. Uh, Divorce is a concession. It 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 is a possible outcome, but it is never once commanded. In fact, in the situations that we've explained, divorce should only be seen as a last resort, a... Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion. As bad as the sin of adultery stings, it doesn't have to end in a failed marriage. It takes repentance. It takes wise counsel. It doesn't just go away. You can't sweep it under the rug. But I, I believe God can mend that which is broken. Every single one of us who are Christians, we understand that, that, that we, were, we were alienated from God. When you gave your life to Christ, he, he made you brand new. And I firmly believe that God can mend that which was broken. Back when we lived near Atlanta, there was a divorce lawyer that always advertised on the talk radio station, which I, I thought was interesting. The commercial went something like this. The attorney comes on, and he says, we want couples to work through their problems. He's a divorce attorney, right? And then he says, but when you can't, we're here to help. You know there is a strong push in this world for couples to pursue divorce. There's a strong strong forces in the world that want marriages to fail and I'll say this as kingdom citizens a divorce lawyer should not be our first step in overcoming our sin issues. If your marriage is struggling because of something other than infidelity then the biblical expectation is a, as a kingdom citizen is to do the work necessary to overcome the sin issues that are damaging your marriage. It, it takes both parties working together for the good of the marriage. It takes mutual commitment. It takes seeking wise counsel. Sadly, for many Christian couples, most divorces happen because both parties in the marriage were not willing to do the work necessary To overcome the sin issues that existed. It may be that pride is the single biggest marriage killer for Christian couples. Not adultery, not disagreements, but pride. And that shouldn't be the case. To the person who's been divorced in the room, I can't tell you anything you don't already know. I also can't tell you anything that contradicts God's standard. God said in Malachi chapter 2 that he hates divorce. And if you've been through a divorce, I think you agree. You understand why God hates divorce. Even when the relationship is so toxic and the difficulties are so great, the pain is still there. It's still immense. It's still challenging. And I think you would probably agree with God that divorce is a hateable thing. That doesn't mean it can never happen, however. In our deeply broken world, we understand that marriages fail for reasons other than infidelity and abandonment. And sadly, repairing marriages takes husband and wife. This is my 20th year of ministry, and I've set across from a lot of people, with men and women who desperately want to save their marriage, but their spouse won't join them in the fight. And if there's anything more regrettable than that, I don't know what it is. For those who are in the room who've had to go down that road, you need to know that it's a road that you shouldn't have to walk down alone. And, and even if your divorce didn't pass the test of Scripture, understand this, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. But just like all sin, as a Christian, it's a sin that we should have remorse for. It's a sin that should grieve us. It's a sin that should cause us sorrow. And if your sin in this regard does not cause you sorrow, if it does not cause you grief, then the reality is is that there may be a hardness of heart there that is affecting your faith in areas beyond your divorce. Lastly, how do we go about divorce-proofing the church? I don't know of a greater, a greater hurt that hurts the body like divorce in our church's families. As kingdom citizens, we know what God's standard is. So how do we make sure that we are striving for God's standards even within our own church? First of all, and this is for people in the room, for people who are watching at home, I'd like to identify four or five older couples who have taken their licks They've survived more than their fair share of challenges and would like to be trained as a marriage mentor. What's a marriage mentor do? Marriage mentor is somebody who can come alongside of a couple in crisis and can say, we want to walk with you through these difficult days. We have been through some things, and we hope that our challenges can help you in your challenges. There's no amount of premarital counseling that can prepare a couple for marriage. I'm going to say this as your pastor: I hate premarital counseling. I'll do it. Uh, I, I hope that there's little nuggets of of truth that get communicated in premarital counseling. But if I could trade in premarital counseling, I'd rather have postmarital counseling. Give me about six months of marriage, and then let me sit down with a couple and talk with them. Uh, that because premarriage counseling, you know, everybody oh we're in love with each other, and they can do no wrong, and 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 I don't mean to be crude but you probably haven't smelled your husband's morning breath or worse odors that he can make in the process of life. Uh, you've not dealt with his dirty laundry in the floor, at least you haven't if you're not cohabiting. You haven't seen his, his, his bad side. You haven't heard him snore. You haven't dealt with all those things, and so I would much rather have six months post-marital counseling instead of those, the premarital counseling thing. And the the reality is, is there's lots of real-life experiences that have prepared us to function as mentors. Whatever you've been through, those are all things that, that you've learned that God has put to work in your life so that you can help somebody else who is facing those same challenges. A marriage mentor is somebody that a younger couple can call in crisis to help them ward off a disaster while it is still early. It's almost like a, if, you know, if they have an earthquake off the coast somewhere, they set the tsunami alerts there, on the, especially on the west coast, the horns go off, and, and everybody says, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a warning, something terrible is about to happen, let us get to higher ground. There's all kinds of signals that, that, that fire in marriage that let you know that, hey, there's, there's trouble coming. Go ahead and take action now before, before the tsunami overcomes. I'd love a chance to, to visit with you if you're interested in being a mentor. We have some training that we would like to make available to a group of people. You, you become almost the front lines of the war on marriage in our, in our culture. If you're interested in that, please touch base with me. There's no requirements other than that you've been, you've you've survived your licks and that uh, your marriage is healthier as a result. I'm looking for marriage mentors. Secondly, this is perhaps the most difficult. We need to resist our tendency towards self-righteous judgmentalism. Let us not forget what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount prior to our topic du jour. There, back in uh, Matthew chapter five, let me read this again just so that it's clear. You have heard it said, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think it's safe to say that we're sitting in a room full of adulterers this morning. I would be lying to say that your pastor even passed this test every single time in his life. I have not. So we all are adulterers in some form or another. So it may be easy to look down our noses at those who don't have it all together. The very high likelihood is that we don't have it all together either. And so it's good for us to avoid looking down our noses at others. Jesus' words about specks in our brother's eyes versus planks in our own eyes should have some consideration here. The church of all places, listen to me, The church ought to be a place where people in struggling marriages can find help. Sadly, what I find to be the case more and more that when marriages begin to fail, what begins to happen, people begin to fall out of church as well. And there's a reason for that, and it's because of the looks that we give, Uh, again, I'm not suggesting for a second that we condone ongoing sinful behavior. I think there's a place for church discipline for people who stumble into sin and refuse to be repentant and work towards restoring that which has been broken. I believe there's a place for that. The church has got to have an obligation to deal with that ongoing sin. An abusive husband ought not find that the church is friendly towards his behavior. I think we can agree on that. But we need not look down our noses at people who are struggling. Thirdly, I think we need to acknowledge our need for the body. Church, we need each other. This six months that we've been doing this thing, if it hasn't shown you that you need the church, something's wrong. We need each other, we need each other for accountability. We need each other for relationships. I think one of the reasons that the 34% divorce rate has, has increased is because we've not had other people feeding life into us and, and investing time in us. I think that's part of why that has increased. We need each other for support. Uh, why do marriages fail because they can't get childcare? Man, we are sitting in a room full of, of people who ought to be willing and able to help, peop, help, a, help a young couple have a date night. If somebody with a five-year-old comes to me and says, Pastor, I just can't make a date night with my wife because we don't have anybody to keep our kids, this ought to be filled with them. There ought to be a a phone call list of of trusted church people that you can call and say, I would love to invest in this couple by keeping this five-year-old so that they can go out and enjoy time alone. I mean, I'm not asking you to take them on vacation or anything, but goodness gracious, let them go to dinner on a Friday night. We need that support. We need that, that mutual help. At the same time, I think that too many marriages fall and fail right under our noses. And if we're not doing life together, true life together, it's, it's pretty easy to see why. We need genuine relationships that go beyond our plastic smiles on Sunday morning and help us be accountable, help us grow. Help us invest in the most important human relationship that we have, and that's the relationship that we have with our spouse. Would you join me in prayer, please? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you speak with clarity on this issue. And even though in our world today we have really gotten off base in this, We've made a lot of mistakes, Lord. We pray that we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ might begin to, to reclaim that which the world has taken, that we as the church could begin working to, to truly divorce-proof our body. Lord, I pray that you would raise up four or five older couples who would, who would love to be marriage mentors, who could take a, a couple alongside of them who, who maybe are in their first five or 10 years and, are, and, and, have, and have hit a rough spot, and could walk with them and spend time with them and invest in them. Lord, I, I pray you'd raise up a, a, a generation of, of, of older, wiser, more mature adults who would be tripping over themselves with excitement to be able to, to, to learn how to invest in another generation of marriages. Lord, I pray for um, those in the room, those watching at home, who, as they consider their current situation, they recognize that their marriage is in trouble, and, God, that they would do what's necessary to get the help that they need. It may be counseling. It may be, it may be simply as sitting down and working through problems together, Lord, that they, but they would begin to do that which is needed to overcome the challenges that they're facing. It takes two. It, it takes two to make a marriage. It takes two to end a marriage. And so, God, I pray that our, our, our married couples would recognize that and, and invest in each other. And Lord, I pray that as your people that we would hold on to that biblical picture even as, we have, even as we've broken it, that we would recognize, stand for, and affirm that picture that you have painted for us as clear as could be in the word of God. One man, one woman, indivisible, inseparable, exclusively for life. God, I again thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity with which it speaks. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. thanks for listening if you would like more information about chattanooga valley baptist check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org if you would like to join in person we worship every sunday morning at ten we're just minutes from downtown chattanooga we hope to see you soon